All right, now, quick show of hands. How many of you have ever heard of the term apologetics, kind of in any sort of context? All right, so most of you are somewhat familiar uh, with this idea, and even if you're not, I'm definitely going to explain it. But the word apologetics sort of sounds like the word apology, which is something that you give to someone when you've made a mistake or an error or you're sorry about something. Well, the root of the word apology in English has its root in a, root in a Greek word, apologia, which means a defense. Um, not an apology unless your apology to someone is, I'm so sorry, um, I, I thought, you know, if you accidentally you know, uh, hit your kid in the head as you're passing in the hall. Oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't see you there. And, and actually, the part that would be the apologia, the defense, is not so much the I'm sorry, but the I didn't see you there. The reason I hit you, it wasn't intentional, I just, I just missed that you were there. So actually, that defense part, and this is why those terms kind of started to, to coalesce, the defense part is actually where or what the word meant um, in, the, in the Greek. It was a word that existed before the New Testament was written. Again, the New Testament was written in, in Greek. Um, and it was often used in that kind of legal context of, of defending someone's cause or case. So if you were standing before a court, you would give a defense uh, for yourself. Or if you're a lawyer, you're giving a defense on the behalf of your client. So that's really what we mean by apologetics is that idea of a defense of something or someone. So does that word kind of make sense, just in the broader sense? Now, uh, when we talk about now, so anything, you can give an apologetic for anything. So you can give an, a, a defense of your, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I know Super Bowl, Super, is it Super Bowl next week or not? I, I don't remember. Is it next week? I don't know. Okay. Is it always the second Sunday of February? It depends. Okay, I had some 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 nebulous schedule. Yeah. Okay. So all right. So obviously, I'm not a huge football fan. All right. So uh, you could be giving a apologia of your favorite team, you know, and why they're going to win. Or uh, say a ref made a bad call. This is where all the lawyers, you know, come out. You're going to watch the Super Bowl, and there's going to be some controversial call from a ref. Maybe it could have determined the game. Now, every, every, suddenly, everyone's giving a defense, right, of, of why the ref was right or wrong, depending on whether you were on the winning or losing side. So you'll start to give a defense of that. You're going to defend your favorite food, your favorite music artist. Those are all apologias, all right, in, in the, the broadest sense of the term. As a formal Christian discipline, Christian apologetics, um, and this is a relatively young field of, of, of Christian, say, studies. Uh, possibly one author says uh, 1834 is when this became like a discipline of, of the church. Christian apologetics is a defense of what? Yeah, our faith, of, of Christianity, of the Bible. So we mean a defense of Christianity, making a case for Christianity. And typically, we see that um, there, there's um, three ways that we do this, okay? Um, there's being on the offense or making a positive case for Christianity. Um, there is the defense or negative um, apologetic for Christianity, meaning you're accusing 
us or accusing Christianity of something, and we're going to rebut that. We're going to defend. No, that's not the case, and we're going to defend why we believe something. So that's more responsive. That's, that's more responding to Christianity. That's defensive. And then there are just giving proofs of our faith. So, for example, um, in Acts 1, 3, after the resurrection, Jesus gave many proofs of his, resur- of his resurrection. So um, there's an offensive or positive way to give an apologetic. This is wh- this is um, these are reasons why, you know, what you believe is not correct, and why ours is the correct way. Um, there's defensive apologetics, meaning you're accusing Christians of this and that, or you're criticizing our belief in this or that. And here's a defense. I'll give some examples in a second. And then there's giving proofs of Christianity. Um, here are the reasons you should uh, believe. And, you know, you can cut that up. You maybe say the proofs are the same as like a offense sort of um, apologetic, but it, it doesn't really matter. The purpose is ultimately twofold, really, to bolster the faith of Christian believers, according to Cowan, uh, I think it's Steve Cowan, and secondly, to aid in the task of evangelism. In other words, it's to encourage our faith and make you more firm in what you believe, um, which is one thing, say, in uh, the beginning of Luke. How does Luke start his gospel? He addresses it to Theophilus. He says, um, I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word um, have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Well, there is one aspect of apologetics is that kind of, so that you might have certainty about your own faith and um, be more firm in it. But the second is, of course, evangelistic. In other words, people, the unsaved people, the, uh, those who are lost without Christ, apologetics is one way to reach out to them, one way to uh, address um, their concerns, their, their complaints, their skepticism, whatever it might be. So the goal of apologetics is one for us, as believers, to encourage our faith, bolster it, and secondly, to evangelize, to share our faith with others. Okay, so you have offensive, defensive, proofs of Christianity, the goal of apologetics being bolster our faith and to reach out to the lost. So is everyone kind of okay with that? Let me give some early examples from the early church. Just for example, um, Jewish people, when Christianity first came on the scene, Jesus is risen from the dead, and uh, Jewish people almost immediately accused Christians, you are blaspheming because you are worshiping a man as God. So what did Christians have to do? They had to give a defense. They had to prove from Scripture. No, the Scriptures say, even in the Old Testament, that the Messiah was going to be God in the flesh. Maybe you go to Isaiah, 15, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, or maybe you go to Isaiah 52 and 53, and you would show passages to demonstrate that actually what you're accusing us of or criticizing us of is not true. Here's what the Bible says about the Messiah, that he's going to be God in human form. So that's not something 
that's true. Or another example um, is the Romans. Since Christians worship Jesus as king, the Roman accusation was you are revolutionaries. You don't, you don't give Rome and the emperor the, the proper allegiance. And so the response was, and you see this in 1 Peter, um, perhaps most of all, but also in Romans, is no, Christians can worship Jesus and be good earthly citizens, you know? And so you have passage, you know, submit um, to the authorities over you, pay your taxes. Like, we're not trying to be subversive. That's not a true accusation. Let me give a defense, an apologia of why we are not trying to um, overturn your kingdom, at least not in that kind of way. Um, uh, another one, let's say, Greek philosophy. Now, this was all throughout. I know it was the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago at the time of Jesus, but there was still a lot of Greek philosophy um, in the culture. And one thing they said is that physical matter is inferior to the spirit. So a bodily resurrection is absurd, it's unnecessary. And so Paul would have to say, and the disciples have to say, no, Jesus was raised in the flesh. He has a glorified body. Matter in and of itself is not evil or, or wicked. In fact, when God made us in Genesis chapter 2, um, 1 and 2, when he made us, even our flesh, right, and bodies, what did he say about everything? It was good. And so there's nothing inherently evil about matter. And so, you know, some Christians were trying to say, well, you know, it doesn't matter if Jesus actually physically rose. If he spiritually rose, that's okay. So Christian apologists had to say, well, no, no, that's not right. He rose in the flesh. People saw him. Thomas touched him. So no, no, that, that isn't true. Um, we should not think that way. So those are just some of the early examples where Christians in the early church Gave, had to give defenses. There's different opponents that came up in the culture, and Christians have always tried to give a response to that. Now, you could go throughout 2,000 years of Christian history, and there's always been some kind of battle or, or fight to wage um, against opponents against Christianity, sometimes even amongst ourselves. And it's one of those things, although the, the idea of like Christian apologetics is maybe relatively new, 1834 or something, um, the idea of giving a defense is not that new. It's something Christians have been doing um, even, I would say, from the beginning. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5.20. Or just listen along. <clears throat> so Paul's talking about his ministry Christ has reconciled us to himself. He has given us a ministry, therefore, of reconciliation. Verse 20, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You got to say verse 21, it's so glorious. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word apologist as a person is not like, an, like a position or role, is not in the Bible. But I think the idea of being an ambassador is, is fairly close. What does an ambassador have to do? They come and they represent the interests of their country. So when someone criticizes, you know, your country, 
who has to give a defense for your country? You know, you, the ambassador does, right? Um, they're not going to, you know, that's what you're there for is you represent the interests of your country. So if they are criticizing something about it, you are the one that has to give a defense for that. Conversely, if your country says, you know, you need to tell this to the people in the land um, that, that we're negotiating in, you're our ambassador over there, now you have to represent those issues. You have to give a fourth a defense uh, for your country's actions or whatever it is they, they say they need or want or, or whatever the case is. So ambassador, I think, actually is a very helpful um, sort of analogy to what being apologist is. So here's a question. Do we have an option about being an ambassador or an apologist for Christ? Not really. No. Um, Turn to, with me to 1 Peter 3. We're going to spend a little bit of time here, and then we'll have maybe a little bit of uh, a chance for questions. But this is the go-to passage for almost anyone teaching a class on apologetics or doing a sermon. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Context of Peter is he's writing to the scattered Christians all over, um, you know, the the they call it the Near East, and they're suffering persecution from the government especially. So you have Christians being persecuted, suffering. Um, some are being you know, thrown to lions. Some are being dipped in oil and lit on, um, on fire to light gardens. It's a horrible time to be a Christian, and um, Peter's trying to give some encouragements to endure and to suffer as a Christian. And he says this. Um, we'll start in verse 14, actually. 1 Peter three fourteen. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. That is, your persecutors. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense and apologia, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So here's one of the seminal passages about who and what we are to be as Christian apologists. And it's sort of, um, you know, nowadays... Christian apologists say, you know, William Lane Craig is a very uh, popular, um, popular one. They go out and they can uh, have, you know, fill up convention halls full of people to hear them speak. They can show up to debates at colleges and universities. And yeah, you might have a couple people protesting or making a stink. But for the most part, they can be viewed as respected men and women who can uh, command the attention of a crowd and be thought of in high regard and revered. That is not <laughs> at all what Peter is imagining here. He's imagining, you know, slaves being uh, beat up. He's imagining, um, or what's not just imagining, that's what's happening. Um, there's uh, women who are married to unbelieving husbands that are being treated poorly and kind of discriminated against because they're Christians and the husband is not. You have that kind of situation. So when you picture the apologist, you're not picturing, you know, William Lane Craig in his suit. He's got, you know, PhDs and he's given 
really a good spiel for Christianity, but we're imagining very normal folks like you and me, in fact, those who are very discouraged and disheartened, who are um, being persecuted even for trying to do the right thing, not necessarily just like, you know, constantly talking about Jesus, but just for, 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 for doing um, good, <laughs> you know, just not lying in things. So it's a very different context. And what, what Peter urges as the attitude um, of apologetics is respectfulness. He says, oh, I'm sorry, I, I skipped one verse, or a section ahead. Uh, what he encourages the people to do is to put Christ first and highest, right? Honor Christ in your hearts. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Holy means set apart, above and beyond. It means uh, on a different kind of level entirely than us. He's not like us. So the lordship of Jesus is paramount in being an apologist for Christ, is you must have Christ as your Lord. You must think that he is the one in charge. You, you can't think of the task as um, and again, this wouldn't have even been in the mind of this first century Christian. Nowadays, I'll say this. Nowadays, young seminary guys, you know, young Christian guys and girls going to Bible college, sometimes there's a little bit of a tendency to want to go, and you're going to be, um, you know, you are going to be the next, um, you know, Billy Graham, or you're going to be the next great preacher, teacher, you're going to be the next great apologist. And there's this idea of um, you're, you're coming into it and you are just going to blow everyone's socks off with how much you know about Jesus and the Bible, and you're going to impress everyone, you're going to be invited to the White House, all this stuff, okay? That, you know, it, it's subtle. I mean, I, I'm thankful I didn't meet too many guys that, at least at the seminary I went to, where they thought they were going to be the second coming of John MacArthur. Um, but you met one or two that, that could come close, you know, and, and you hope that it wouldn't get to their head. Um, you cannot have an attitude that would seek to honor yourself, right, and to, to prop you up. That's, again, wouldn't have been quite a concern then. There's, n there's nothing glorious. There's no kudos or awards to get uh, for being a Christian at the time of Peter except blood, sweat, tears. Um, but for sure, the, the highest goal, again, has to be Christ being your Lord, not you. Also, Christ being your Lord and not people. See, the worst thing for an apologist to do, someone giving a defense, is to fear the people that he's or she's giving a defense to, right? Because if I'm afraid of you, I'm not going to give you the truth. If I'm afraid of you, I'm going to be tempted to compromise or give in to your demands. And of course, here, very much so in the context. So again, and I'm not trying to just keep using William Lane Craig. It just he happens to be a big name guy. He can go um, into a college and give a debate or a lecture, and he's not going to worry about what's going to happen to him after that. You know what I mean? Like, he's going to get in his car, he's going to go home. I don't know, maybe he's received death threats before or something, but I, I doubt it. 
all right? Um, I don't know. Maybe he's got security guys. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that many apologists have had death threats. Uh, well, okay. I, I don't want to say that and be, <laughs> turn out to be wrong, but, um, you know, for the most part, he can say what he wants to say, and if people are offended, you know, it's no sweat off of his back. But here, again, you're talking about Christians who are suffering. They've got, they've got a, a boot to their neck, so to speak. It's very tempting to say, okay, whatever you want me to say, you know, I'll, I'll give into it. I'll, I'll do it, right? Just a different context today. So understand the pressure. Understand the, the audience that Peter's speaking to. He's telling people that are very much have every reason to be afraid of the people they're trying to speak and give a defense to, that they could retaliate. They could kill him. And he's telling them, no, the first thing, the most important thing, the most paramount thing as an apologist, someone giving an offense, is that Christ must be Lord. Set him apart above and beyond everything else. He must be the one that you're seeking to please. He is the one that you're trying to be an ambassador for. Don't dare misrepresent him in his truth and his deeds. Don't make him sound like a monster who just condemns and judges willy-nilly. Don't dare make him seem like a softy, mushy-gushy, you do whatever you want. You have to honor him as holy, exactly who he is and all of his attributes and his character. You have to set that aside in your heart and make that like a place in your heart that's untouchable where you're never going to compromise on it, no matter what people say or do, no matter how much fear you have, fear him more. Then he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So obviously there's an element that, uh, of preparation that uh, we should never shy away from a chance to be an apologist for the Lord, um, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, preach the word. Preach in season and out of season. So what does that mean? All the time. So the same kind of idea. Always be prepared to make a defense. Always be ready for, to have someone question your Christianity and, and to bring them into that. I mean, um, boy, I, you know, there, there's awkward times to get into conversations uh, with people about faith. You know, you just run into someone at a supermarket and you just start to talking. I mean, hopefully you've had conversations where you weren't expecting them about faith and the gospel. Um, and, and all it is is, again, an attitude. If you're an ambassador, you're an ambassador all the time. I mean, you're always going to represent that country. So if you do something embarrassing, if you do something, um, you know, off the clock, it could potentially ruin um, your ability to defend your country that you are representing. And in the same way, the idea is you're always a Christian, so don't think you're ever off the hook or off the clock from having to act and speak like a Christian. Always be, always be ready. Uh, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And this is obviously a key word Hope, I think we talked about it not too long ago. Um, yeah, in Ephesians last week, one hope, right? Um, by associating it, like, for, that you should always be ready to give a defense 
or the hope that is in, within you, what is it that people were seeing or should see while these Christians are being persecuted, they're going through uh, trials of fire, literal fire, um, they're being put to death, they're being mistreated. What is the thing that stood out or should stand out? What are they asking a reason for? Is it, well, how do you spend your Sundays? You know, or, um, uh, man, I, I noticed that you don't swear or something. It's happened a lot in the army. It's like one of the most notable things is if you don't swear. Um, no, what is it that they are noticing the most? They have hope. I mean, talking about Christians burning at stakes, being thrown to lions and things, and what stood out or should stand out is that there's still hopefulness in these suffering Christians. You have a tremendous opportunity to give a defense for your faith when in the midst of the worst trials and circumstances of life, you still cling to a hope in the Lord. Because if, you're, if when times are good, you're praising Jesus and it's kumbaya, well, anyone can be, you know, can, can be a happy, good Christian when things are going fine. But when the trials come, when the storms and winds howl, how you respond in those moments are often wonderful, apologetic moments. When you show still a hope and trust in a sovereign God, then you have a chance for people to be legitimately confused. All right, all right. There is something weird here, because I know if I was in your shoes going through what you're going through, my response would not be to have hope. So um, the hope that we have is communicating uh, our, um, our ability to put heaven and our home and God above our circumstances. That's uh, one of the necessities of, uh, of uh, apologetics. Now, all, all of that is... <laughs> Didn't mean to actually to spend a whole lot of time on that because I, I want to get to two other elements of being a good apologist. Those are our preconditions, let's say, um, that you must be a Christian who has, you know, who God is over you and you legitimately have a, a hope. Um, but what actually uh, is, is the focus here is yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So, being a good apologist is not so much about having a command of the entire Bible. You know, I, you, you can cite a verse, say a verse right now, I'll tell you exactly where it is. Never. <laughs> I can't do it. Um, many of you are like that too. Maybe many of you feel like I can't give a good, you know, defense. I can't be a good ambassador. I, I, I just falter at times when I try to uh, remember a passage and all those things. Well, don't ever feel bad nowadays. You have a Bible probably on your phone. I mean, even when we're singing, I thought of a Bible verse, and I couldn't remember exactly where it was. I just, I Googled it, you know. Don't, don't tell anyone, but pastors Google things too. That's okay. I mean, nowadays, we don't even have an excuse not to bring up a Bible verse because you can do that, but that's not a precondition. Um, or, or, or That's not a necessary qualification um, beyond having honored Christ in your hearts as holy and, and having a hope. Peter says, have an attitude of gentleness and respect. Again, um, you could translate this actually meekness and fear. Uh, meekness, as we've talked about, this has come up a lot actually in a lot of different studies I'm doing. Meekness is again that idea of power that is under control or a choosing 
to not wield all the power that you could. So a gentle person is not a weak person. A gentle person is someone who's strong, who's choosing to be weak for the sake of someone else's benefit. And so gentleness here is, is not a suggestion at all that uh, we're timid, you know, little mice, and we're scared of our own shadow, but rather knowing that a great big God is on our side, when persecution comes, when hard times come, our attitude is still to respond to others, even those persecuting us, with gentleness. That's a choice to make. It's not a, you've cowered me into fear because you wield power over me. It's a, I know God is on my side. And, and I could, you know, even Jesus said, I could if I wanted, when he's talking to Pilate, have a host of angels here. But there was, this had to happen this way. I have to choose the way of gentleness and meekness because this is how I'm going to conquer is through that. So same kind of idea. Um, the word for fear or, or respect actually is uh, the word phobos, like phobia, which actually means fear in Greek. So we get the word phobia in English, like arachnophobia, fear of spiders. From this Greek word phobos, it means fear. And it usually means the kind of fear that you have that um, not quite a shaking in your boots sort of fear, like you get scared at something popping out at you fear, uh, but a deep like reverence, respect. Um, it, it's the kind of um, knowing what someone can do to you. It's the kind of fear of knowing what someone can do to you or knowing what something can do to you. So if you've ever um, you know, seen a, a video, or well, not seen a video, if you've ever been like in close to like a natural disaster, like a, like a big storm or hurricane or tornado um, or an earthquake, and just that realization that this is so big and so overwhelming, like I'm nothing compared to, you know, this, this, the forces of this wind or this earthquake, that kind of like respect for your smallness and inability to do something, it's that kind of fear. It's more like a, I don't know, like existential or something. It, it's, it's deep within. It's not just being scared of the dark or even spiders. And so it's oftentimes translated respect because there's many passages in the Bible talk about fear of the Lord. It's not, there is a, there, you should shake in your boots. The prophets did, but it's more than that. You know, it's more than that. It's the sense of like standing in the face of something so big and powerful. And yet, just like we're called here to be, uh, have a meekness and, and fear, God chooses to deal with us that way too, doesn't he? I mean, he's big and scary. He is. It's God. I mean, if you're, you know, you, you might feel small in comparison to a blue whale. You know, you're swimming in this vast ocean, which also makes you small. And then you have this gigantic blue whale size of a school bus swim by you. You feel small. Well, God is bigger than the universe. God creates all things. We ought to feel very small and weak. And so here, that is the sense of our attitude. This is a tough one for me in terms of being an apologist, in terms of being someone who's going to go out there and you're going to represent the Lord, you're going to defend his cause and the Bible. We're being called to have a fear of God. And it's not talking about fearing man there, but a fear of God that, that understands our smallness in comparison to him. But the way it gets translated to our attitude towards other people is gentleness. Got this great big God on my side who I'm in fear of, and that makes me want to 
treat other people with gentleness because they have to one day stand before the same God that I'm in fear of. So why should I um, begrudge them, so to speak, their own um, state before God? I mean, they're going to go to hell for eternity. This eternal God is going to condemn and judge them. That's fearful. So have an attitude of gentleness towards them. Um, and we, we've talked a lot about this or starting to talk a lot more about this in our men's breakfast time, going through a book called Gentle and Lowly, based on Matthew 11, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are we um, weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, for my heart is, or for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Very similar ideas there. Jesus himself chooses to be or is gentle and lowly with us. So this is an attitude in 1 Peter 3.15 that Christ himself has. He fears God, of course. He's the son of God. He understands. He submits to the Father. But he also chooses and is a gentle God and deals with us very patiently. So we are to have that same attitude, that same heart. That's key. That's key to being a good apologist, to being someone who gives a good defense. And it doesn't matter how many Bible passages you've memorized um, and I didn't mention this morning. Oh, maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. Um, James 2, James writes, the demons believe that God is one, and they tremble. Do they obey? No. <laughs> Do they submit? No. So you can know the Bible. You can know things about God that are true and have that under your belt, but if you have no real fear of God, no submission to God, um, you are not going to be of much use as an apologist and defender. Second thing that uh, Peter uh, calls us to have is a good conscience. Why is this in, important for an apologist, someone who defends Christianity to others? Well, one of the most indicting uh, comments that Jesus or accusations that Jesus makes to anybody in the Gospels is the Pharisees and scribes. And what's his favorite adjective? No, noun? No. Woe to you. Hypocrites. Right? Is that an adjective or noun? Why am I? It's a noun, right? <laughs> Why? Why am I? <laughs> I'm a linguistics major, by the way. <laughs> it's a noun. It's, a, it's an accusation, though. Right? It's an accusation. You hypocrite. Right? Hypocritical is an adjective. All right. You snake in the grass? I mean, he called them vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. John the Baptist did call them that too. Yes, he did call them vipers. Um, but Jesus also calls them, I believe that, in Matthew 23. Hypocrite. That's one of the most indicting terms that Jesus uses for people. And unfortunately, what can tarnish any apologist's reputation and all that they stand for is scandal, hypocrisy, tarnished pulpits. One of, and this is unfortunate, but one of the, the greatest apologists of the last you know, 20, 30 years passed away a few years ago, Ravi Sargarias, well-known, articulate, brilliant man, and after his death, it started to leak out. 
that he, he owned massage parlors and was eliciting people um, to do things, that, you know, other Christians to do things at these massage parlors is very scandalous. And there's, not, there's very few things that I would disagree with Ravi Zacharias on. So if you found any of his teachings, almost all of it, I would be like, this is so good. But I am likely to never recommend <laughs> something from Ravi Zacharias now because of this tarnished reputation. It, it won't matter what Christians say or argue for Christ since they've undermined their apologetic witness, not because of having weak arguments, but a lifestyle that was not blameless before God and others. Now, does the Bible promote that idea? I mean, maybe the Bible says, hey, you know, as long as what you say is okay, how you live your life, it doesn't matter. Because, you know, truth is truth. So you you speak truth, it doesn't matter if you are uh, living your life this way or that way. Is the Bible like that? (coughs) No. (laughs) One of the definitions of a false teacher is not even necessarily that you teach false things, but live in a false way. In 2 Peter chapter 2, you have a, a whole section about false teachers, but it's almost as much dedicated to their false teaching as it is their false lifestyle. Um, he says, um, boy, I, I could probably read the whole thing. Um, I'll just hear. So he's talking now about um, angels, but he's saying that, that false teachers are like these fallen angels. He says, um, and actually he says that they're worse <laughs> than fallen angels, that false teachers are worse than fallen, fallen angels. Second Peter 2.12 But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children forsaking the right way they have gone astray. So there's almost a sense that you can turn a good teacher into a false one, not by them starting to get involved with false teachings per se, but a false lifestyle. And and that's sort of where you might be in the case of someone like Ravi Zacharias, where his theology and his doctrine were, were solid. But somewhere along the way, he got led astray not by, you know, you know, Islamic theology or Buddhism or anything. He interacted with all those. No, he got led astray by his own desires and, and lusts, and it led him down a path where I, I don't know where his soul was when he died. I'm, I hope that he was a, a believer, but the level of hypocrisy, if, if all these things seem to be true and they did a whole investigation and they determined pretty much that it was true, it makes me less certain about the state of his soul. It's a sad thing to say about an apologist, but that's exactly why Peter says in 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is almost like if you really want to, if you really want to shut people's mouths, if you really want to stick it to all those anti-Christian, um, you know, I try not to use names and, and labels here, but if, if you really want to um, throw it back, you know, stick it to those who are constantly trying to say Christians are the, pro, you know, the problem for everything, and you blame us for, for you know, racism, you blame us for you know, every social ill, you blame us for everything that's wrong. <laughs> if you really want to shame your accusers, right, what should you do? Honor the Lord. Be ready to give a defense. Have a hope that is obvious even in the worst of circumstances. Give a response with gentleness and respect and keep a good conscience. Keep your nose clean. Don't, don't make Christ look made out to be uh, a fool, a charlatan, because we preach him and then we don't act like him. It doesn't mean we're perfect, by the way. I think it would have been much different I mean, I hate to keep being Ravi Zacharias up, but he had a chance. He knew he was dying. It's not like he died in, suddenly in a car accident. He knew he was dying. And for the life of me, I cannot understand why, if, you're, if you know you're going to die and you have all of these things to expose you, why, A, you, don't, you just do a better job of hiding it because you did not do a good job of hiding it, and that's obviously not the right answer, but B, to say, I can't leave like this. I'm going to show a testimony of true repentance. I mean, he could have left us with something much more God-honoring, even in his sin. None of us here are perfect. The point is, is not that we are perfect, but when we sin, we own up to it. We confess it. We make, us, we make it right with, God, uh, with, with others, and then we repent to a God who we know will forgive us. And rinse and repeat, because we're always going to sin. It's not to say that you're perfect. It's to say that we have a good conscience that we're keeping short accounts with people, that we're constantly owning up to the things that we didn't do right, constantly living in God's for forgiveness of sin. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you're perfect. Um, he had the chance to do that. He knew he was dying, and yet he had like text messages and things on his phone, even like leading up you know, days and weeks um, about this stuff. And I just like, you know, the cynical part of, of me says, could you not have done a better job covering it up? But then the other side, you know, of course, more seriously, it's like, you had the chance. So many chances. God was so patient with you at any moment, especially as, you're, as you know this, you know, the prognosis, I think it was cancer, gave you a deadline. How could you not? How could you not? say, I've done wrong to my family and to all of you. You know, forgive me. I know God can and will, but I, I know I need to ask forgiveness. And given us that testimony, instead, we're just left with, you know, as soon as he died, praise. Everybody's praising him. You know, Facebook was full of, you know, how wonderful he was and all these things. And then like a week later, you know, all this stuff starts dropping. It's like, oh no, everyone's got to like walk it back. I mean, it's awful. That's how important this is as an apologist. And it just makes it worse because he's an apologist. That was his thing. That was his ministry. Anyway, I'm going too far. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> I, I mean, that's the way it feels, but it, it, that kind of stuff tears me up so much. It's like, because he did so much to bolster people's faith. I mean, I loved hearing the man. He, was, he, was, he, he, he had an Indian accent, and so I love accents, so you just listen, but he was so articulate and eloquent of speech. He had a way to turn a phrase. He had this cadence. You could, you know, just for me, one of those guys you could just listen for, to forever. Like, man, I wish I was. See, that's the thing. You think, I wish I was as good as him. I wish I was as talented as him. And then I think, I wouldn't want to be him for all the money in the world once I have. Maybe I'll be content <laughs> just to be right here with you guys, and you guys tell me my sermons are too long, and you, you dress funny, and, you know, what are you doing here? I, I'll take it. <laughs> if the, that's the term. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I know. And I, I, the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You know, money is immoral. It's amoral. No, no morality attached to it. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the kindness of the Lord. For sure. For sure. And. You know, he's a f head of this international ministry. And no one thought it was weird that he was buying massage parlors? I, I mean, he had purchased a lot of goodwill through his ministry, you know, and what he was doing. So the, he, he, he had a lot of goodwill. And so... I, <laughs> just, <laughs> like I know, like if I came into our elders meeting on Wednesday... And I pitched to, to being in Chris, you know, I think, uh, I think of like a massage parlor ministry would really <laughs> benefit. Just imagine how that would go. Just imagine how that would go. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. And, and, and the thing is, a lot of times it's, it's money's a factor because, you know, you know there's, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of trust that goes there, um, there's, there's a, a lot of yes men that were around him, and you can get to that place. Unfortunately, his is not the only story like that. And the common denominator, frankly, does seem to be, you know, money's a big part of it. It's, it's hard not to say that money and, and that popularity doesn't go to someone's head. Um, I mean, I, I don't want it. I, I, I think about that paradox so much. Do you want your ministry to be large or not? Anyone, not just a pa pastor. I mean, just asking all of you. You guys all have a ministry. And the natural inclination would be like, well, well, of course, I want it to be a blessing. I want it to prosper. But boy, it's, it can be dangerous, can't it? Like, it just, it is a dual-edged sword. I don't know what to do with that sometimes. Because I've heard people say, you know, you know this, this church should have people packing its walls because, you know, the, the quality of the, the people and the ministry and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, I think, I, I don't know. Maybe there's a reason to keep it smaller. Maybe you don't want to be like a church that's, you know, all of a sudden bursting out of the seams and then, and then there's compromises that are made. Or the pastor's head starts to get a little bit bigger and things change and you got, um, <laughs> you know, you got a hot tub on the, on the roof. That's, that's, the, that's the joke. That's more likely than a massage parlor. So, you know, got a nice big flat roof <laughs> Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and I think, no, it, like I think you really have to be, uh, so I will say this, those who did have big pulpits and ministries who seem to remain, you know, free from scandal, I mean, I think a lot of prayer, just truly a lot of prayer, obviously just the grace of God, but, you know, to give credit to that person, like they, you know, that is an achievement. I mean, just you know, money changes everything, and popularity changes people. Um, so just kind of a something I think about. And 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 Peter here, even to connect that to First uh, Peter three fifteen and sixteen, he's calling all of us to have that like personal mindedness about your ministry. You know, you know he's not. I don't even think Peter wanted a, a big you know, pulpit, or, or Paul even, uh, for that matter. So I, I appreciate that, that Peter, I feel like he kept it small and close. And I say that, I know this is a little bit of a tangent now, but just because it's mentioned, First Peter 5. Now remember, in, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven all the time, you know, and you know Peter <laughs> would have been right up there, you know, but here's what he says in 1 Peter 5, and this is just a pastor thing. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Elders, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Did Peter figure it out? The whole lesson about greatness and being the least of all? I think he did. Here he is. He calls me, and I feel like he's calling me, you know, a fellow elder with him. He's not over us. He's not beyond us. He just sees himself as one of us. I just, I don't know, something about that sentiment um, always uh, rings um, or brings encouragement to my heart. I mean, he just saw himself as just, I think, another guy speaking to a Joe on the street, so to speak, um, to paraphrase you, Patrick. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so being an apologist, you need to have a reason for the hope that lies within you. So there is some knowledge there, but for your Christian, you know what that knowledge is. You didn't become a Christian without being given a message of hope, that your sins can be forgiven, that you can have eternal life. That's all we're talking about here. But more importantly, or emphasize at least here, especially in the, the context of persecution and suffering, have a respectful attitude, have a gentle attitude, have a right conscience before God, and before others, and you do that, you will shame your accusers. I think one of the follies sometimes of apologetics classes, Bible studies, whatever have you, books, is that sometimes you can start to think that what people need, you know, unbelievers, what they need is the right argument, um, you know, like the right um, persuasive kind of um, rebuttals of their uh, atheistic or, you know, Buddha, 
um, Buddhist background or something. Um, there is no, there, we will get to it next time, but there, there is not like a magical formula for someone to realize that they're a sinner. What they need is truth. Don't get me wrong. They do need knowledge about who Jesus is and what the Bible says, but they are not going to be one, let's say, just by hearing these uh, arguments for Christianity or these rebuttals of their criticism. What they need you for is not just to be a, a dispenser of truth. Because I, I can almost guarantee, I don't know if you guys have been hearing the news about all this AI chat stuff, um, I'm confident that there are going to be pastors, if they haven't already, who are using AI chat generators to produce sermons better than they've ever told in their life. Because you can literally put in every Spurgeon sermon into like a an, an, uh, machine learning um, database and you tell it to give me a sermon on the excellencies of Christ, and it's going to churn out Spurgeon-level sermons that you could just practice and, and read. See, if it was just about dispensing truth, if it was just about giving someone arguments for the existence of God and so on, then we're not necessary. We'll just let the AI do it for us. But what an AI cannot do is have gentleness, a fear of God, and a good conscience, you see. And so the world needs us, needs apologists like us who love the Lord, <clears throat> who put our hope in him, um, and so on. So I, I'm not saying we're not going to learn some valuable witnessing tools and address certain arguments. I, I want to, in the course of this, um, maybe get to certain specific social um, issues um, and, and know how to bring a Christian defense uh, of our worldview. But understand, we're not going to win this spiritual battle because we are, our swords are sharper, let's say, or our weapons are better. We're going to win the spiritual battle like we learned from the book of Joshua because Yahweh is the Lord of hosts. He fights our battles. And I want to be on his side. It's not that he's on my side helping me to win my battle. I am on his side, and he is going to win the battle. And so we're just trying to get on board with him and what he is doing. So <clears throat> we are, in the weeks to come, we're going to center on some scripture. Like today, we centered on 1 Peter 3, um, a little bit by way of introduction. In the future, we're going to center on some passages of scripture um, that I think are valuable for apologetics, and then use that to springboard, um, depending on how much time we have, to certain maybe specific issues. Romans 1 will be probably a big one because it addresses specifically like homosexuality and what that means as far as uh, God's um, uh, judgment on people. So we're, we're going to have to talk about it because uh, God makes clear that everyone knows that there's God. So... You don't have an excuse. And one of the ways that we show that there is no God is when we do things like, and the example Paul gives is, like homosexuality. So we'll talk about that. Then there's a couple other uh, maybe issues like that, but that's the plan. That's the map, all right? So we'll go through some 
key scriptures and uh, overlap them with certain maybe valuable apologetics uh, discussions that are you know, relevant, relevant to today. So any questions or comments about uh, where we are, where we're going? Yeah. Why is so much bad stuff? <laughs> so, so my like the, to me, there's there are a, this is one of the nice things. There's so many ways to skin that cat, right? So one way is to simply throw the question back: What is evil? You tell me what evil is, and then I'll start answering your question. But you have a the irony is of that statement is you have a presupposition of evil that comes from the Bible. And then you're going to accuse God of doing that evil. No, 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 you don't get to do that. You need to come up with your own definition of evil apart from the Bible. I know what evil is because of what the Bible says. You don't get that. So first, before you start calling God evil or saying anything is evil at all, tell me what you think is evil. Because if in your worldview, we're just atoms and molecules. I know this is not 240 characters, but we're just atoms and molecules. There's nothing evil about, you know, like a hydrogen and oxygen bumping into each other or electrons you know, interacting with each other. There's nothing moral about that. Well, everything is reduced to that. So you know, show me what evil is. So the irony, Mike, it depends how deep in the weeds we get with this, but um, there are different schools of apologetic thought. Maybe I'll bring it up next time. So w the way I was trained and the way I think um, is very helpful to me is, is called the presuppositional apologetic. William Lane Craig is more along the lines of a classical apologetist. Um, classical apologetics is you first um, demonstrate the existence of God using different arguments, and then you next step argue that that God is the God of the Bible. So it's sometimes called two-step apologetic process. So um, in presuppositional apologetics, um, we like to, to instead of maybe do like a, a two-step like that to say, you cannot make sense of reality without assuming God. So let me show you how you're, you're foolish even to try and form arguments against God because what you're going to end up doing, you ever remember those um, uh, cartoons like uh, Wile E. Coyote and he's sitting on a cliff and then he's cutting the cliff, but it's the one he's standing on and then he you know, falls to the ground. Does that, do you remember that? Okay, so that's what an atheist is right? They're saying, you know, how can God exist when there's so much evil in the world? Well, you're using a definition of evil that, that comes from God to discount God. You're, you're just, no, you don't get to do that because what you're really, if I let you do that, you are like a, as, as foolish as Wile E. Coyote cutting off the very ground that he's standing on. So you don't get to, you don't, you know, let me help you. You don't get to just use my definition of evil. You tell me what evil is. And if they can't, then what's the use of your worldview? You can't even call stuff evil. Now, if you want to call my God evil, who defines good and evil, well, now you're, you have a misunderstanding about evil then um, altogether. So I know that's kind of a bigger subject we're going to get into. Uh, that's called theodicy, is um, how can God and evil 
um, be reconciled, the existence of God. But I think one of the, there's a lot of ways to address it. I think we, the problem is actually to me more that we have so many ways to address it. You kind of have to figure out the angle of the person who's asking and find the one that might make sense to them. Um, but I, you know, I've had a lot of atheist friends, people come out of the church, become atheists, and they bring that up. And I just like, you, you, you have been preconditioned with a definition of evil that comes from the Bible. So you don't get that. If you're rejecting the Bible, you don't get to use that. Now, I, I, you know, you're trying to say what I believe. You're saying, I believe that God is evil and therefore he doesn't exist. But that doesn't make sense. Like, you, you can't argue that by my definition of, of evil and then try to undermine my worldview. No, you have to use your worldview and tell me what evil is to begin with to say why God cannot exist with your definition of evil. And that's a much different question that, frankly, I don't think a lot of atheists really want to ask. They'd much rather use a Christian's definition of evil and then try to trip you up with it. But uh, we don't realize that we're, we're giving them. So presupposition, I know, I'll, I'll stop here, but presuppositional apologetics tend to think that we give way too, men, way too much deference to unbelievers. Like we kind of give them all the tools to, to shoot us down with, and then we defend ourselves from like all the, 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 the ammo that we give them, including like, you know, let's assume that, that we're all of the same like rationale and same, you know, mind. Well, are we? Do, do, are Christians maybe different way of thinking than non-Christians if we truly believe that? Don't we have the spirit and they don't? Isn't there a difference? I know we're all made in the image of God, but where's the common ground between believers and unbelievers? That's one of the questions that we'll, we'll ask. <clears throat> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, they understand the Christian society is so embedded. They don't know they're there. Yeah. That's the big problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's ironic. I know. <clears throat> Yeah. No. Yeah. No. It's. Yeah. It's. It's ironic, but uh, I, I like to say, well, like you, you don't get that. Like you, you don't get that as a as a gimme. Like if you're creating your worldview, I'm gonna. If you don't like Christianity and you're you're trying to argue against it, then I'm gonna take that away from you. So you don't get to use Christianity in your thinking. So, you know, definitions of good and evil, you got to come up with that. You don't get to use mine. So you got to come, you know, you got to come with me with all of your worldview completely stripped of this because you're already then conceding that you've lost if you have to use my book's definition of good and evil and God to argue against me. Well, then you already lost. You're already agreeing with this. So that's kind of one of the arguments that the presuppositional um, apologetics, uh, apologists use, that kind of thinking. Yeah, Lynn. Mm-hmm. Ray Comfort? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I 
Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Until that, I didn't know either. Yeah. Yeah. He does a great job of of being very like gentle, you know. He's respectful of people when he does it too. So, yes, I think some of our guys. Did you ever go out with Ray Comfort when you did it? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll hopefully hit it from a couple. Yeah, we'll we'll come a different ways at it because we're all different personalities too, and different ways we approach it. Yeah, and so. We'll, so we're all called to be, let's say, give a defense. So we're all apologists. We're all ambassadors. But, you know, we, we have different giftings and different uh, ways we relate to people and understand things. So hopefully we'll, we'll all find something that kind of uh, resonates. Because there isn't a cookie-cutter thing to this. It's not like this is the right way to give a defense or faith. There's nothing like that. Um, but I, I, I see, I think I started a Josh McDowell book. And his son, Sean McDowell, is also a, a believer. No, Lee Strobel. I was reading a case for Christ by Lee Strobel, and then I left it in a doctor's office. And so I thought, okay, maybe that doctor needed to read this book because I, I left it in there and I never got it back. Um, <laughs> anyway, but. I don't know. It's hopefully a way to, like, um, Again, we're going to take some, some key passages and just center our thoughts on those passages that hopefully encourage us in how we think about sharing our faith or how we think about even defending um, our faith. I mean, I'll, I'll share some stories, uh, too, with um, some of this um, big, big creation evolution thing when I was younger that I went through. And um, I remember that was one of those crisis of faith moments, but... Um, I've had a few of those, but it always comes down to kind of very the same truths. So we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. So any other comments or questions? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll stay with you too. So hopefully we'll all have something to learn here. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 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 It, I I think it will be something. I'm trying to keep it from being like an academic thing. You know, overly. Um, maybe include some of that just for some of those who might be inclined that way. But uh, I, I really do intend it to be something very relatable and Scripture-centered. I mean, it, it better be Scripture-centered. Um, so hopefully everyone will get something out of it. So. Yeah, yeah, if I, if I put it, I, I mean, if you guys haven't seen it, it is 
crazy how good it is. I mean, it, it's, it's, you are going to get, you are going to get sermons, excellent sermons crafted by these things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, no, no. It, it's it's so novel and unique. You won't get there. So let me pray. We can talk more about that if you want to hear my thoughts on uh, sermons and AI chat uh, over over dinner. Heavenly Father, thank you again that uh, beyond any kind of. Um, like a, a regiment of, of apologetic study and, and inquiry beyond any, even things that you might learn at seminary, which are all good and fine. Um, ultimately, uh, you have deliberately chosen um, not <laughs> the best, the brightest, the, the ones who are most eloquent of speech and uh, quickest of, of mind. Uh, you've, you've chosen very normal, everyday, average people like us, uh, like me, um, to accomplish your will, because you get more glory if we didn't come all polished up and, and nice and fancy, that when actually uh, we are someone that the world would not think much of, and then you use us, um, that says more about your your glory and your uh, wonder than, than if you only chose the best and brightest. So thank you, Lord, for doing that. Thank you, Lord, that you have supplied um, more than enough reasons to put our hope and trust in you. And Lord, even when we are discouraged, may some of the things that we learn in this study encourage our faith and, and make us want to share it with others. And Lord, I do pray that there would be people around us asking a reason for the hope that is within us. So help us to be prepared for that. Lord, bless this time as we eat and share some fellowship around the table. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, thank you all. And again, uh,